Welcome to Poetry and Conversation. We're so happy that everyone joined us tonight. Um, we'd like to invite you also to come to some of our other upcoming events. Wednesday, April 3rd, we're going to kick off National Poetry Month by reciting favorite poems that we have memorized. So everyone's welcome to start memorizing your favorite poems and come here to the Poe Room April 3rd, and we'll all share. Then on Wednesday, April 24th, the Old Songs Group will be performing their translations of Greek and Persian poetry set to music. And I'd like to encourage everyone here to get on our email list uh, so that we can keep you informed about other poetry-related events. At the Pratt, there's a sign-up sheet in the back of the room. We also um, have a hashtag, uh, Pratt Poetry, so if you tweet, um, you can use that. Tonight, we are thrilled and honored to welcome Clorinda Harris and Karen Garthy. Each of them is going to read for a while, and then we're going to have a little Q&A, and then they'll read some closing poems. And then hopefully, um, maybe not much time since we started late, but we're hoping there'll be a little time for people to mingle at the end and buy their books, which are in the back of the room. Um, Clorinda and Karen have very graciously agreed to help us introduce them. But first, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction. Karen Garthy grew up in Baltimore and attended Towson High School. When she graduated in 1968, she went to New York to study dance, then embarked on numerous careers in New York City. Clorinda Harris was her English teacher at Towson and her faculty advisor to the school literary magazine of which she was editor-in-chief. Garthy won the 2005 Colorado Prize for her first book, Frayed Escort. The Banjo Clock was published in June 2012 by the University of California Press. I'm sorry. Reviewing the Banjo Clock in the Huffington Post, Seth Abramson says, Karen Garthy writes some of the most expert and tightly wound lyric poems you'll ever read. What Garthy is offering today's poetry readers is a reason to read poetry rather than prose, to listen to poetry rather than electronica, to inhabit a verse environment rather than some workaday multimedia environment whose dimensions are as unlikely to educate as they are to inspire. Clorinda Harris is a professor emerita of English at Towson University, where she taught poetry, editing, and modern literature for decades, during one of which she was the chair of English. Her most recent poetry collections are Air Travel, Mortmain, and Dirty Blue Voice. Harris's poems and short fiction are widely anthologized. She directs Brickhouse Books, Maryland's oldest literary press. Her ongoing research interest is in prison writers. She and Mara Egan recently edited Hot Sonnets, a collection of modern erotic sonnets. City Lit has established the Harris Award for Poetry in her honor. And novelist Jeff Becker says that poems by Harris have the clarity of early light and the seductiveness of dreams. And um, now Clorinda is very kindly going to help us um, help introduce Karen. Thank you. I script my spontaneity, and it keeps me from rambling on and on and on. So I actually wrote out what I was going to say about Karen, who I have known for a very long time. One of the great things about teaching is that you learn so much. And Karen Garthy was a student, as, as uh, Shailene just told you, at Towson High when I taught there for several years in the, in the mid-60s. And I started to say I taught Karen Garthay, but that would so not be right because I can't think of a single thing that I taught Karen. Whereas uh, she taught me, by example, what distinguishes a writer at a very early age, a passion for reading voraciously, for language, for words, for ideas combined with a powerful sensitivity to the intuitive and the emotional and the musical. Karen is still teaching me by example. I, I don't know any writer more committed to the craft and by sharing her knowledge. I confess that she sometimes sends me to the dictionary. 
as one who considers New Orleans kind of my second city, I confess that I had never heard of the very famously uh, exotic um, sisters of whom she writes in uh, The Banjo Clock in one of the poems, The Dark Dauphine. And who knew? Maybe everybody but me knew. I did not know until Karen taught me that Abraham Lincoln was a poet. Oh, my God. A stanza, a wonderful stanza from one of his poems appears in all its rhymingness uh, at the end of one of her very musical but unrhymed uh, poems. What she can't teach me is how to do what she does. It would take a brain transplant for me to even approach taking the imaginative leaps and making the deeply resonant connections that she makes among words, among sounds, among ideas, among images, and she does that in every line. So, unfortunately, Karen cannot teach me to fly, but she can fly, and and you will notice that immediately when you start listening to her. Karen, you are on. Thank you. I have to think about that. I never knew any of those things. But I tell you, um, it's an incredible honor to be here because I spent every Saturday of my life as a child in this library. My dad had a store on Saratoga Street. And I began my... I came to work with my dad on Saturday. And first I went to the Walters... And I looked at the mummy, and I thought about the mummy that was right there. And then I came to the, li- the library and spent the afternoon at the library. And then I went around the corner to Mulberry Street where there was a newsstand, and I would buy Paul Krasner's The Realist and uh, Sher- Sherman's and, and the Evergreen Review. And my father would find them and take me back to the store and say, if you ever sell my daughter this crap again, I will put you out of business. Hello. In New York City, whenever you walk by a limo driver, they always seem to be asleep. So this poem is called Ikebana. Another sleeping limo driver and too much guessy lowdown, overnaming, hopping the magnification of any resemblance to a hundred percent. The way, call another boom delivery costs more than itself. Abiding sparkle, wry barbell maintenance. Finally, to add the crack allure of beauteous scarring, a small common tool that comes into clear view without its task, and the motion of new utility. Actually, I'll tell you, this is a poem I I hadn't seen Ocean City in a really long time and um, happened to be in Ocean City and see that it was so completely built up, it reminded me of Beijing. So that was part of the cause of this poem. Rehab. We were visiting my uncle, who was on his way out. Rehab. We want grace walls. Something to it. A line to start rehab and democratize the body's frail thrashings, water-slapping deletions. This skyline's Beijing's dovecote, but destination song of America cartoon, a wide-eyed midge, the heroine's flight to restore, bulging Popeye, coy Betty mincing her pinpoint, shrugging, oh, oh, what do we want? to the distance that quits her as she'll quit others. Crescendo. I got a message from my love in the ocean there in the water particled by sound. A line to start the journey beach cheap, Beijing style. Towers, tiles, totems. To haul frail deletions Bedside adorables as kittens sweeten their buttons. 
to the monstrous frail. Tenderize their water and their air. The future gates, the iron dollops of we want grace walls. Easy maintenance. National sky. Far spicy arithmetic petals of sugar in the coffee day. Rasher of national sky. Yellowing dates hang their chits in atmosphere. Zone the yellowing news and debris. Shrimp tin in the sink. A mug of memorabilia's pinless grenade. More ash than saying. The fog in a blend of simples escalating fugue. Not a cloying phobic or a sad brown nettle, just the hustle of weightless furrowing through, tinkling empties, clank of a full can trying, managing, wiles grayed down from an unseen flipping point to pivot the speaker in maze more green than stalwart, more innocently stalled and far more breached and dismayed. Buckle up, sweetie. Glory wreaths, flutes to Corinthian foliage, the heavy tops of stone. Who is crying and holding her eyes? Who's impervious listens? Stick tables and chairs bite gravel. Would Harry talk to Jane if she didn't have money? Who's Delarobia? Who's Travertine, Brahms, Demotic, Double Teams, the gorgeous transvestite? Buckle up, sweetie, and keep a stable chronology. The demonstrative kindness of elderly, shut, night, Figments and early modes of play. This is my f- this is my favorite poem I, because th- this poem somehow encompa- encompasses or attempts to uh, encompass the scope that I'm interested in and a kind of circular time. Um, Jay Gandhi, just as a point of information, Joseph Gandhi was a kind of mystical, visionary architect um, who worked for John Sloan in England. Um, Uch is a, is a uh, sort of rural area outside of Pakistan. Eternal youth. J. Gandhi's drawn, candled, vaulting sepulcher Mortuaries of Giza's little ground stones lift here like money. The scarred back sways, coins groan in their vitrine. And Elizabeth House on Thames performs the ink of the river is truth, is stones paunch with gout inevitability. Who passed away? Platforms, sanguine and ooch, tombed in the mogul style. That troglodyte feeling only comfy in the dark. The student of baths, circus, oyster plates constellate a plumb line and none of dreaming. Here was their best friend, and their sadness, robin red breast tall, is not for food, at least not for us. Lace makers and weavers, youth eyes, webbing, pruning the cortege, the scarred back sways, the chewed tombs in ooch in mogul glazed ceramics, the head toss, the air tray. Here comes Lincoln, bare, 
hibernating bear, hunting bear, naked skin north fishing bear companion in starry mineral veins, warm brown bear swimmer kelp lace, Boyd, mail order bride bears wedding cackle through the piney pristine rolled sleep den bear pungent emergent rock corridor. What kind of fish can these bony wickers boggy irons after all hibernial oils? Hut and velts? When first my father settled here, twas then the frontier line. The panther's scream filled night with fear and bears preyed on the swine. See, you respond to that. You like that. You like that. We took a bubble bath. We licked the windows. We'd been talking about zest rules. Take everything zest. Take the zest for punishment. Things belong, but you have to listen to them leaving zest. We didn't have to listen to Tragic planes high over the cloud cover. Zest, scratch. We delighted completely. Licking the windows first and the things first to go, well, we licked. Great Expectations, an entirely appropriated poem. If you was 50 pips, enriching me had perished. Bread and butter was gone. Great black pall, trenchant for the fugitive shuddering nettles in both arms, meat bone for the misty, rimy morning. You have got the ague, says I, as if some goblin riveted as iron to listen. Pudding was on the boil at the first punishing amen at this dismal time. What light we had, what way we could, struck out, slipped off Gravesend, rode, rode, and rode. Do you, dear boy, a sort of Sunday tune? I was a growing rich for any mastering idea meant to lie all night by. Skiffs and wearies briskly constant for any mastering idea. The road that ran crisp for Hamburg, for Rotterdam. Is he there, said Herbert, summer in the light. Winter in shade as iron was riveted he was already mincemeat down. The sign of the house caged and threatened. My benefactor driving down irresistibly. A meat bone for the mighty marshes. My place while he lived. How am I doing for time? I'm okay. I think I'm going to look for that Nita and Zeta poem. The two, Nita, Nita, the dark dauphine. Nita and Zeta were two exotic dancers in New Orleans in a theta barra mode, and they, they. I lived in New Orleans for a time, and they had just one had died years before, and then the other died, and they thought they were extremely impoverished. But when they went into their house and on Dauphine Street in New Orleans and, and took it apart, they found money plastered behind the walls and underneath the wallpaper. It was just completely dense and covered with money. But Nita and Zita sewed all of their own costumes and all of their own clothing, everything in this sort of all-over Persian mania style. Um, and when I lived in New Orleans, all of their clothing had just 
flooded the market and people were coming from actually all over, mostly the United States, to try and find a, buy a little piece of Nita and Zeta. I got a few pieces, but I don't know where they are now. The Dark Dauphine. Four of us marched out singly to undo a stay of formal delirium. Four of us stepped right up to the bar. Our charm fell in poems. In the dark, like Nita and Zeta, we glittered frankly. Acorn studded, spidery all over, motifs dauphine of sunbeam pasties, Nita and Zeta stitched everywhere. Our gullied knees dimpled the bar stools. We snapped our heads and flared. We forgave separately and shattered one at a time, like Nita and Zeta did, artistically. Encrusted the dark dauphine, labeled spigots hot and, gold and cold the pair. Four of us rode a light-made horse and scored a little demented Juliet mandolin with heavy-lidded silver. Beauty. A picture of darling you. Barreling emerald eggs, piebald, bounded blue cushion grandeur, bounded the medium. Punies, you resented or opalized. When the tide rises, all boats float the same unfirm jellies and tactics. Clasp, longing, right inside its daddy of dragons guarding the door. Hatching skeined drives, nubby sequences to the dragon edge. The pillow center you had then. More room than you thought you had. Less vanity about the brow. Gins in orbit. I was seeing the dragonfly score the temple following silence inside. Gins in orbit clustered light. The temple bidden high step, goose step, crunching silence inside. Somebody's recessed slippers the outside women cocooning, jeweling, milk-squealing babies. Outside the temples, flame-swung, tripart, sacred geometry built on the inside, rows of the unseen, paycock writ daily. In and out, stacked grains and kernels lay down in the numerous, absorbing pitch, infinity stretch. The temple, the dragonflies crossing, buzzes, rupestral whites. I'll read two more poems. Baby Krishna crawls to bliss. The lounges are grape leaf thick, their waxy hands, long loving incarnations, sag in rattan. The first mantra of the day is Ganesh with his mouse footman. Then, baby Krishna crawls to bliss. The lion-hearted, wisdom-loving wisdom's granite spar, even in the crosshairs, baby Krishna crawls to bliss. The banjo clock. Hour on hour, the cream must have some yellow in it to strum in the arms of the magus in Titian teal, a great moon front of sky. This street won't happen again, this term, this avenue gestures lindens and spring, the moon, with its small engine dark blue falling back in its hum, right here's the lumber, the gang box, 
the eggs for coddling superstition without naming the fractures or cleaves of repetition descry the buttonhole stars, gassy wisps. Galactic hours, little green minutes ding and tick. The countryside, Zola said, looks cut up, looks like beetles grind its leaves, pinch and masticate all soft skin. The moon shouts mad despair. Keep walking, used to the sound of moist emotion. The smoother attributes, Saint Blarney and feudal crime, the melancholy sadists of the Rhineland talk, the aftertaste. Afternoon, wheel scrapes, toss, boxes of squeal. The headlights, cold halogen streams, a watery exchange, diffuse as the banjo moon has a little yellow in it, in the arms of the magus, in Titian teal, nevertheless capacity, strums the whole ground of light and hollow, true chiaroscuro, like Rembrandt, stepped right out of the Psalms. So now, now I now I introduce Clorinda Harris. Um, first of all, I have to tell you I've always suspected that every summary is a betrayal. So, which that's part of why I kind of refuse to package myself or make project statements as a poet. But and since um, introductions pre- prescribe a kind of summation or packaging, they do make me nervous, but tough, right? I've known Clorinda Harris most of my life as my high school English teacher. At the time, I think she was probably only seven years older. That was, right? Something like that. Clorinda was a figure of authority. But to our excruciatingly self-conscious and often mightily tortured teen souls, Clorinda offered real, true winks of getting it. And sometimes, within that armor of authority, which she didn't really seem to wear all that comfortably, even then, you could see Clorinda's heartbreak for somebody. Her poetry is so perfectly in the body in the joy and bewilderment of just being inside one of these so-called temples of pleasure and excitement, warm and cold comforts, aching decrepitudes and outright pain. Yet, Clorinda's poetry body is to me made up of spiritual yearnings that take the form of empathetic connections and ecstasies. But Clorinda knows how to do things, too. She knows how to take care of things. She knows how to start a fire. She knows how to tend a fire. And she knows how to put the fire out. Clorinda watches your back. Some people say she snores, but she calls them liars. I'm so ch- I'm so taken and so grateful and thank you so very much. And yet I can't I can't not think about a line that was said by Jane Mansfield, but it was in a show. It was a scripted line when when she she said, uh, "I'm terrible in bed. Ask anybody." 
so many people think I snore. <laughs> oh, sorry. Calm down, Clorinda. I, I don't. I'm so moved by that. I'm babbling. I, um, I wanted to read a couple of a few poems that are so very different from what. Uh, Karen does and can do. I can't do what she does. So I, I'm going to deliberately read poems that are so opposite what she does, i.e. some of them are sonnets. And of course, it's also a way of touting hot sonnets that Maura Egan and I edited and it came out very recently. And uh, it's erotic sonnets in the 20th and 21st century. And we really insisted that they be erotic. And I think... You know, I think you all can take it. I'm going to read one from here that actually is kind of, well, it's sort of dirty in that um, you must cover your ears if the word fuck bothers you. It was actually uh, designed for students of mine who simply, I don't know, they, they're native speakers of English, but they reject the, spell, the way English is spelled, and they, I, I understand that because it's crazy. And so the words that I would put on the board to illustrate how they're right, English spelling makes no sense, the central vowel sound is identical in the three words that end this poem, but they are spelled no way alike. And I think this poem also tells you why I like sonnets. They uh, mimic, I think, the drama in a very tiny way, the drama of what happens in real life, and that is that something happens and there's an abrupt turn and you go off somewhere else. This is called Talking Dirty. I wanted to write a Talking Dirty sonnet, most, prob pro most probably Petrarchan. Dirty words rhyme well, though dentally, a bit absurd, they should be labial. I'd get right on it, except that limericks have been there, done it, and those hard sounds might cramp the sweet first third of sex's poem, the slow swell, the blurred divide between perhaps and have to have it. And yet, what romance lacks a volta? vital or fatal. Love's halves, asymmetrical always, maintain a shaky poise. In time, may teeter toward a murderous punchline. The poem writes itself. We lie in trance, but love, fuck, trouble, hum their assonance. And um, the, there are many wonderful sonnets in here, very few of them by me and precious few even by Mora, and I recommend it highly. Um, I not only defy all things current by writing sonnets, except that actually people write sonnets constantly, almost as constantly as the Elizabethans, but I also write narrative sonnets. And to some extent, narrative is a dirty word in some writing seminar settings. Like, oh God, he's so narrative. Oh, please. I am so narrative, even in the confines of a sonnet. And I just will read you a couple that illustrate the point. Um, soul food. And it's one of several odd sonnets. I, I like odd numbers. They're 15-line sonnets. Mr. Bartram, heart of the farmer's market at Abel Avenue and Union Memorial, is gone. Lost his leg, lost his crop, lost his farm, all lost and gone. Gone the ham hocks, sausage, slab bacon, smoked turkey wings, black-rinded cheese. He could slice out a pound of that cheese to the nth of an ounce, the swinging scale, a mere formality, a sort of brag. Gone the fuzzy, gleaming fruits, tomatoes, okra. We rant, and rightly, about the damaged health care system, insurance, etc., yet we mourn him in a way we would like to be mourned, but probably won't be. Where, where is the good food we loved? Um, this is... Uh, that I think it doesn't need explanation. 2600 block... October 6, 2008, which is the date of a news article about one of many murders, actually, that happened uh, near where I lived. Shirley Brewer over there, hi Shirley, has a fabulous new book out about Steph, uh, Stephen Reichert, who was killed in that same block very recently. This is not so recent. The article is. 2600 block, October 6, 2008. In the block where I lived, a baby's born and killed. He's found in a garbage can behind St. John's, whose brick and iron cloister winds to the alley. Its privacy was utter and well-known. 
My parents and I, beyond the table where we dined, could see old homeless George, who drank and mourned for FDR. When beaten, robbed, he warned us, place ain't safe. And this was 49. I grew to be a smart-ass kid who used to hide and seek and smoke in St. John's Dark, the one girl in a pack of boys. For a lark, they tore off my shirt to check, they said, the view. Soon we moved away. My peas complained of noise, and I relearned to like the salty smell of boys. Um, a sonnet that's entirely, almost entirely fiction. Um, reader, writer, traveler, thief. Puberty gave a boost to her kleptomania. No more messing with glass gems and candy cigarettes, the real things. Plus dirty paperbacks from the drugstore, just for the fun of it, always gave the swag away. Fast forward 30 years, discretion, caution, even perhaps a mite of conscience. She really meant to return the tattered classic she borrowed from a tiny library in New Zealand where she stole summer from January. What to bring her lover as a souvenir? Careful, no mementos for his wife. In the duty-free at the last stop before home, she jettisoned Middlemarch, along with notes for some fatuous ekphrastics on Maori art, and slight-handed a box of chocolates into her overnight. I leave you to decide what aspect of that is fiction. Actually, a couple things there are true. I really did throw away a, an accidentally stolen copy of Middlemarch because it was just the right size. I did not steal the chocolates, but it was the right size. Let me the right size space in the overnight. Um, you understand. Um, the t- some of you may, I'm sure, many of you remember uh, when 29 miners were uh, killed in a mine explosion in West Virginia. Not nearly long enough ago. It was still pretty recent. Uh, the first line here references hell. The last line is a quotation from the last line of Dante's Inferno, only it negates what Dante was happily saying in that line. And its title is from a Motown song that some of you may remember, going down, down, down. It seems like hell, but a miner told CNN, except there's air, it's like walking on the moon. Air black as space and cold and gone too soon. A poison food the miners shovel in. In the case, unlikely, of an explosion, a rope of steel hangs where, so says the law, the men can reach it, feel their way, and haul their blinded bodies up toward the sun. Next time you light your stove, make us a prayer. Next time you're cruising in your car, pray for us who are under the hills you climb. Consider fists clamped around that silver snake when they finally found the 29 who didn't come up again to see the stars. If this poem, this sonnet, sounds a little bit like uh, the slightly berserk version of the wording of a physics problem in a maybe a 10th grade uh, math problem book, it's supposed to, but I don't. I don't think many sonnets have spot pots in them. This one does, and um, I was watching the new building at Towson University go up from my desk in an old building. Physical. If a giant crane swings in circle, wait a minute. Let me start over. Physical. If a giant crane swings a girder in an arc as wide as the crown of the oak tree beneath my office window and the stories of the new building opposite my old building rise at an accelerating rate. How long will it take those six men, whose talk I can hear from my desk, their heavy green and white helmets raising their voices to the power of X, to file one by one into the little green spot pot perched on today's top layer of steel like a steeple that got its proportions wrong, before the crane's Eiffel arm returns to hoist aloft and away that one three-by-eight-foot cube of space not bared to the air's infinite angles. And how am I doing for time? Sonnets supposedly take one minute apiece, and if I should shut up, then that would work. Um, This is for someone very close to me who died a few years ago. White noise. 
He died and died before he died. That's how it is with strokes, granted. But death and sleep, to our surprise, didn't get along. I had to buy a box of noise to fool our scared, scarred brains. To lullaby our eyes. A simple toy. A set of three percussive bass notes thumped beneath some scrapes and whooshes endlessly, all night at least. Make the machine do train, he'd say. Train was our favorite. I think what he heard was the far-off tracks curving under Kansas to the coast. What I'd hear uh, was the tracks racket underneath me in a Pullman bar. He died wide-eyed. I don't turn train on anymore. Oceans shiftless. Breeze blows cold. Brook is nearby plumbing disrepaired. And all night does is smear some digity crickets over boxcar, boxcar, boxcar. Which, by the way, is a quote from Allen Ginsberg's Howl. And it used to be very famous, and now people don't recognize it as such. Um, because of, of Karen's and my both having close associations, hers much more knowledgeable than mine to New Orleans, I'm going to read a, a Sestina in which I must again warn you that the six repeated words are uh, deliberately uh, uh, offensive, and, uh, and there's also another voice that pops in, uh, You'll, you'll hear it. it it's, it's a different voice. Big easy trick. Poncher train, you filthy fee. You always wanted to suck the city back into your stinking hole. Your juice is thick with fish guts, chicken heads, blood, beer piss, and shit. We understand. We loved that shit. Danced in it drank its stink, sold our drunken heads down the river thick with sex and music, sucked it in, guzzled our fill, and more than filled, overflowed in alleyways thick dark. Grins pressed to our heads like guns. We were suckers for convoys talking shit, pocket-picking in the stink. Ten dollars say, I can tell you exactly where and when you got those shoes you're wearing. All that's left today is stink, the city. Uh, this was obviously written right after Katrina. The city is a river of shit and sickness. We can't get our heads around it. We're too filled with how it used to be in the thick of it. Happy, drunk-ass suckers. So we're begging you, suckers that we are, when the shit sinks and new concrete thickens your sides, to keep your stink and ours ripe and ready to refill the streets. We bend our heads. You got those shoes right here on Bourbon Street tonight, July the 10th, year of our Lord 2005, in the fine city of New Orleans. And I think, I, I think I'm sort of out of time, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? I don't, I've lost track because I forgot to look at my watch when I, when I stood up here. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read poem. I'm gonna read one that's based. I'm gonna read two very short poems based on the fact that two people I like a lot like them. This one was liked by Bruce Sager, who um, is a very fine poet. I've known him all his life, and he likes this poem. Cat lullaby with peanut butter. For each of three days, half a small rabbit has arrived at my back door, hardly bloody. I carry each one dangling like a fancy teacup from my forefinger and thumb pinky extended to the trash can. For three days, Mrs. Katz, small and old, has been a lioness, dozing, sated in the sun. Each night her gray fur smolders, sparks to the slightest rustle in the boxwood. I don't know, I guess I should go to bed instead of standing here at the back door eating peanut butter right out of the jar watching Mrs. Katz. But sometimes I just get so damn hungry. So... Oh, and then this is a very, this is really also short. It's a very old one that, Ann, that was liked by Ann Tyler. And she actually sent me a copy of it when it appeared in The Sun ages ago and said, I still really like this one, Clorinda. So if, if, if she liked it, I'm going to like it. And if I could find it, that would be a good thing, not a bad thing. I decided, I decided against reading it, and so I took the sticker off. This is called Grace. Regular Friday paper, photo of murdered three-year-old smiling and charming in his birthday hat, photo of houses scoured by flood or wind, photo of howling wives, mothers, sisters, lovers, photos coiled among the paper folds, ready to strike me dead at breakfast. Quit 
flip to hints from Heloise, where a lady writes from Arkansas to tell the world how she rinses her pantyhose or stockings in the sink, then hangs them from her ceiling fan to blow dry overnight. And oh, my mind, mind, for once has mercy. All night what revolves in my dreams is not the chamber of a snub-nosed gun, not the dark proboscis of a tornado, not the grieving Hasid Muslim Hutu, but that mountain woman's ghost legs, filmy, languid, breathing heavy in their sexy slow dance through the dark. Thanks. Thank you, Clarinda and Karen. Um, we usually, um, at this point in the program, we have a little bit of Q&A, so if um, our poets would like to come up to the table, um, is that okay? And <laughs> um, and just to explain, and actually I haven't, uh, I haven't mentioned this to our poets either in the excitement, but um, we're recording for a podcast, so um, if we, we're going to try to say everything into the microphones, so for the recording purposes, so um, if you um, if you ladies could share the mic, it would be great. And um, <laughs> can um, does anyone have a question? Um, and I'll, I can bring you the mic if you. It's for the. Yeah. Uh, yes, my question is for Karen. You say you went to New York to study dance, and I'd be interested to know what type of dance you studied. And how did the dance affect your poetry? I did go to New York to study dance, and I went to New York to study ballet. I lived in the Y, and I studied at American Ballet Theater when it was on 58th Street, and I had lots of glamorous stars like Violette Verdi and beside me at the bar, and was completely and utterly intimidated. Did not set the world on fire. Left New York for a short time, came back and studied with Merce Cunningham. Um, and I had, such, had had such long and intense ballet training that actually Cunningham was very difficult for me to, to master. And in addition to that, I respect and love John Cage, but I, that was not the music that went into my body that made me want to dance in the first place. So... That didn't last uh, for very long. I think that I think that um, music that, that that music made me want to dance, and that music is 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 at really also at the root of my poetry, although not necessarily in a in a traditional or assonant way. Okay, this is called "Thank You, Genentopia." And genentopia is a disease of the elderly eyes, and it's also known as synopia. How tacky is that? And it's also known as second sight, and it often leads to cataracts. So this is called uh, Thank You, Genentopia. For delicious misreadings, like a college parking lot sign, farts building, rectal hall, today's Groupon for half-price cat washes, for a sleeping face, not beery, but beer, and that's B-I-E-R, worthy. A student open mouth with wonder, not sleep. A whole audience silent, my private Gettysburg. For seeing an unexpected reflection through a window glass darkly as a not-so-bad me or a strangely dressed stranger. Thanks, medical names, for my kind of farsightedness. Thanks for reminding me from my 20s on that parts of me were aging, parts already old and no parts safe, that if my eyes turn to milk glass like my father's and old Chet's, the black man in North Carolina who could see through the piney night to where the raccoons hid, I'm on my way to what the old folks called second sight. So this poem is from Freight Escort. It's called La vie de Marpa. Marpa was a Tibetan sage. He was the uh, student of Naropa. And I suppose you all know who Naropa was. Um, Mar Marpa was apparently a very, very, very bad boy until he experienced some kind of epiphany 
and, and, and got in, down with his sage self. La vie de Marpa. It was freezing needles. Marpa called on the furnace of his soul to keep him warm. Though he were blind, Marpa would not be lost. The porch as a point of entry. The villa in a hunch of wild. Through the oval gold and cloud, Marpa's tunic falls. To the natural spite of privilege, the orange pongee, delicate couscous perfume, and every unmanageable things a lotus in a house of water dragging to the next plume, glyph, father, younger than you are now, and texture of the wind and ardor swimming so the horizon shies falling silent. The contortionist sits, his house in his lap, the junta is in the cafe doing the bursting lines. Marpa seizes his master's stick. In a room of unnecessary things, plays, saffron strings, mist over Marpa. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I know I speak for everyone when I say this has been a really special evening, wonderful poems and um, comments from both of you. Um, and I know I'm going to remember this for a long time. I just want to thank everyone again for coming and remind you the poet's books are on sale in the back. And um, we'd also love if you sign up for our uh, email list so we can um, get you back for some more poetry events. And um, we also have some evaluations on the back table, so if you want to leave us a comment about the event, that would be terrific. Um, so have a good evening.